so much. How many of you brought your Bible? Will you hold up the Bible this morning and open it, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke chapter number 2? The Gospel of Luke chapter 2, page number 1073 this morning. The Gospel of Luke chapter number 2. And I'd like to read some verses here in just a little bit. And then I'm going to ask you, if you will, to leave your Bibles open. And just follow me along here this morning. I'm so glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, we're always delighted to have folks come visit with us. And only one thing makes that better is when you come back again. So I hope you'll come back and be with us again real soon. Our little saying around here is, at Woodland, you're not just welcome, you're wanted. And we mean that, don't we, church? Yes, sir, we mean that. We want you here. We need you here. And uh, so I hope you'll come back and be with us again real, real soon. Don't forget, don't forget tonight, 5.30, the special Christmas program. And then, of course, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock for our carols by candlelight service. It's going to be a good service. I hope you'll be here for that. All right, the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 2. If you're there, would you say Amen. All right, I want you to look this way, if you will. You know, one of the more recent Christmas movies that has come out on television is one that's called Christmas with the Cranks. Christmas with the Cranks. I'm sure many of you, if not most of you, probably saw that. Uh, it's only been on about 443 times since Thanksgiving. So you have probably seen that movie before. But really, if you haven't, it's what it boils down to is a movie about a suburban family who, because their, jo their daughter joined the Foreign Legion, she's going to be out of the country during Christmas. So this mom and dad has decided that they're just going to skip their annual celebration of Christmas. In fact, what they, what they decide to do is to take all the money that they would normally spend on Christmas, such things as buying gifts, gifts and decorations and so forth, and they're going to use that money to purchase for themselves a once-in-a-lifetime cruise to the Caribbean island. By the way, it ticks their neighbors off. It makes some of their co-workers mad, but that's their decision. Well, as the movie continues, their daughter calls them on Christmas Eve and says she is, in fact, going to come home. Well, abruptly, of course, the cruise to the Caribbean is immediately canceled, and these parents have got to somehow fly in now and act as if Christmas was still on, though they have made no preparations for it whatsoever. Then as the movie concludes, uh, all the neighbors have got together. They've got over their madness. They've all got together. and They're helping the family decorate the home, plan the meal, as if skipping Christmas had never, ever been an option. In fact, as the movie ends, the dad is standing in the front yard, and he says this, Skipping Christmas, what a stupid idea. How many of y'all seen that movie before? Two of us. Well, let me recommend that movie to you then. Uh, I'm kidding about that. But you know really what bothers me most about Christmas is not those who skip Christmas, but it's those who miss Christmas. You see, all over the world, people have put up trees and they purchase presents and they're singing songs, but in all actuality, once again, another Christmas will come and go and they'll miss what Christmas is all about. Oh, I agree. They've got the part about Rudolph and ribbons. They know the part about <coughs> garlands and gifts. They got all of it down about tinsels and trees, but you and I know that there's so much more to Christmas than just that. So this morning, I don't want to speak on that subject of skipping Christmas. I want to speak on this subject right here, missing Christmas. Because i got to tell you something. 
Our world is full of people who are going to miss what Christmas is all about. And by the way, this phenomenon of missing Christmas is not just something that is happening in the last days. In fact, as we go all the way back to the very first Christmas, which we're going to do this morning, we find that even at that very first Christmas, there were many who missed the significance of what Christmas is really all about. So what I want to do this morning, I had you open your Bible to Luke chapter 2. Let me just read some verses here. Leave your Bibles open as kind of just a springboard to get into the thought for this morning. Look at verse number 7, Luke chapter 2. Here is what we read. And she brought forth, Mary brought forth her firstborn son, who is the Lord Jesus, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. And there were, she- there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Missing Christmas. You know, here we have, in a nutshell, exactly what happened on that very first Christmas morning. In that manger that was filled with the stench of the animal, in that angel, uh, in that manger which had uh, manure for its carpet and cobwebs for its curtains, the Lord Jesus made his very first home on the earth in a sheep shed. There lying in swaddling clothes was the creator of the universe. There laying in that manger was the fountain of all living things. There laying in that manger was the Son of God and God the Son. There laying in that manger was the center and the circumference of all things. An invasion into time, from eternity, an intrusion into time. God had now come to earth. Deity had invaded humanity. It was history's greatest hour. It was humanity's greatest honor. It was heaven's greatest help. It was a mystical moment. It was a monumental moment. It was a magnificent moment. There was a new star that was shining brightly in the sky. There was music such as this word world has never heard. The heavens were aglow with the glory of God. After 400 years, God was one once again speaking on the earth. Indeed, it was a moment that would never happen again, never repeat itself, and yet so many miss the significance of that moment. You know, I'm talking about referencing the people who walk into and out of that very first Christmas story. There were people that night when Jesus was born who could have cared less about the birth of the Son of God. They could have cared less that a Savior had been born. They were totally disinterested in what had happened. In reality, they're the excuse makers. We have them alive today. They're the excuse makers. And what's so tragically true about their excuses is this. The names may have changed, but people pretty much to this day still cling to the very same excuses. Excuses as to why 
they will not allow the Christ of Christmas to be born into their heart. I told you a couple of weeks ago the greatest thing that any of us can ever do in this walk of life is to make our heart a manger for the Son of God to be born into our lives. Hey, has there ever been a time that you opened your heart up to the Son of God? Has there ever been a prayer that you prayed like this, Lord Jesus, I accept you as my personal Lord and Savior? What kind of an excuse are you using to reject the Christ of Christmas? Well, here's what I've done. I've just gone through the Christmas story and as I looked at the various people who walk into and out of that story, I see several excuses that have possibly could have been used to, uh, to, to prevent them from celebrating the birth of the Son of God on that very first Christmas. Well, as I look at some, I find that there were some, number one, who were too busy to be bothered, too busy to bother. Number two, there were some who were too good to guide. Number three, there were others that were too clever to come. Number four, there were others who were too fearful to follow. And number five, there was one who was too wicked to want. And all of these people and all of these excuses surround themselves around that very first Christmas. But here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid there are people sitting right here in this auditorium today and one of those excuses is your excuse for not coming to the Son of God, for not allowing the Christ of Christmas to be born into your life. So what I want to do this morning, if you'll permit me to, it's 1034 and we're going to be through early this morning, but I want to look at those excuses that we find in this story and let's see if there's anybody in this room today who's making the same excuse. First of all, number one, when it comes comes to the innkeeper in our text this morning. Now, there is no, I get it, I get it, I'm like you. I don't see the word innkeeper in our text this morning. But I do think it's implied that Mary and Joseph came to an inn and evidently had to be turned away by someone that I'm going to call the innkeeper. And the innkeeper's pro problem was this. He was too busy to be bothered. Now look in our text this morning in verse number 7 we read about this, that Jesus was born in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. You know as I studied the story about Christmas and the story of Mary and Joseph I, I found, according to the text here, that Mary and Joseph had to leave their hometown to venture to the city of Bethlehem. It was a very long and arduous journey uh, from Nazareth down to the city of Bethlehem. In fact, I read in one commentary that it was a 70-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem by the way the crow flies. You know, we're from the country. We say, by the way the crow flies. But most people agree that Mary and Joseph probably traveled some 90 miles to get from Nazareth all the way down to the city of Bethlehem. The, 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 the Caesar of Rome had sent out an official decree that all the world should be taxed. And to do so, every man under the dominion of the Roman Empire had to venture back to their hometown to be registered for the census and to pay their taxes. So here comes Joseph and Mary. Joseph is from the town of Bethlehem. And Mary, along 
on the journey, the Bible said, is great with child. She is soon to be delivered. I can see them as they arrive there at the inn in Bethlehem. They walk into the lobby. They're greeted by someone standing there at the desk who says, can I help you? And they said, we've made a very long journey and we need a place to rest for the night. They come to the inn. I'm going to call it for the sake of story this morning. I want to call it the shepherd's inn. And they come to this inn and they greet are greeted by the shepherd and they say, we need a room for the night. And the shepherd says, do you have a reservation? And Joseph says, no. He says, then I'm sorry. We're full up. Tis a busy time of the year, you know. I have tax collectors and census taker from all over the Roman Empire staying here. I've got to be busy about the entertainment. I've called in the Damascus dancers and the musical maidens from the Mediterranean. Room? No way. There's no room here in the inn. We're slammed full. I'm sorry. You'll have to go somewhere else. Joseph replies to the innkeeper by saying, but sir, you don't understand. My wife is heavy with child. She is expecting a child at any moment. We've got to have a place. He says, sir, I've told you, there is no room here for you, your wife, or the soon-to-be-born baby. Joseph said, sir, can I speak to you privately for just a moment? You see, this is not just any baby that's about to be born. You see, a, a couple of weeks ago, my wife was visited by an angel. He announced himself to be Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And this angel told my wife at that time that she was going to become the mother of the Messiah. She was going to become the mother of the Son of God. He told us that the child to be born was to be named Jesus because he was going to be the Savior of the world, the Savior of his people. Sir, he's going to be born sooner than later. He could be born right here in this inn. Sir, tonight your inn could go down as the history in the history as the birthplace of the Son of God. The keeper responds by saying, I've got to hand it to you. I've heard a lot of story in my time, but that one takes the cake. Angels, Son of God, indeed. You know, Jesus saving people from their sins. Who has ever heard of such? I've told you I'm very busy. This is the best few weeks I've ever had. I'm making money hand over fist. My inn is slam full. Now you've taken up enough of my time. I've got things to do. But if you must have a place to stay, there's a shed out back. There's a barn out back. There's some straw in there. Throw it on the ground and make you a bed out of it. Otherwise, be on your way. I've got to get back to my business. So that night, Joseph and Mary head out back of the inn to a sheep shed and the Bible said that night, wonder of wonders, Jesus is born. But the innkeeper missed it because he was too busy to bother. I wonder how many people are sitting here in this room this morning and that's the testimony of your life. You're too busy to be bothered with Jesus. Oh, you're not too busy to be bothered by your career. You're not too busy to be bothered by your job. You're not too busy to be bothered by your possessions. You're not too busy to be bothered by your pleasures. You're not too busy to be bothered by your family. You're not too busy to be bothered by your own selfish ambition and your own desires. But when it comes to the Lord Jesus, you're too busy to be bothered with the Savior. 
Sad indeed. Sad indeed is the person who sits in this room today who is too busy to be bothered with Jesus. Can I tell you that Jesus is your only hope of getting into heaven? Jesus is the one who can give you and make life worth living. Jesus is the one who can get you out of the pit of sin and put you on the glory road to heaven. Don't ever be too busy to be bothered with Jesus. Can I ask you a question? Nobody knows the name of this innkeeper and nobody knows the name of this, of this inn. He missed the greatest opportunity of his life to welcome the Son of God into the world and to welcome the Son of God into his heart. Have you ever welcomed the Son of God into your heart. It's not enough that Jesus was just born into this world. If you're going to go to heaven, he's got to be born into your heart. You must make your heart a manger for the Son of God to be born in. Don't be too busy to be bothered with Jesus. Too busy to bother. But then we run into a second group of people that walk into and out of the story of the Son of God. Now I'm referring to a group that Matthew talks about over in the Gospel of Matthew chapter number 2. I'm talking about the chief priest and the scribes. Now you think about that. Matthew talks about them. The king had heard a rumor. Uh, the king of Judea, Herod, had heard a rumor that another king had been born. So he sends to the chief priest and the scribes. He's wanting some information. He's wanting to find out if it's true and if it is true, where would such a king be born? So he calls the chief priest and the chief scribes I'm calling their excuse, they're too good to guide. There's the chief priest. Now you've got to understand these priests. These priests are God's representatives to mankind. We understand in the Old Testament that a priest represented God to humanity, but we also understand that a priest represented humanity uh, to God. And these priests, no doubt for years and years, had bloodied their hands with the sacrifices of animals whose blood would make an atonement for the sins of the people. There's the chief priest the religious people. And then you've got these scribes, these men that were versed and schooled in the Old Testament. They were the Bible scholars of that particular day. They studied and were very familiar with the Old Testament prophecies and promises and predictions. If you had a Bible question in those days, without doubt who you'd need to go see would be one of these scribes. And so here comes Herod, and he's got a question. Where is he that is to be born king of the Jews? And these priests and these scribes with pinpoint accuracy tell old Herod exactly where the Son of God is to be born. I'm telling you, they know exactly. In the city of Bethlehem, a one-stoplight town, a one-horse little town, outside six miles of the city of Jerusalem, a lowly place, but God chose a lowly place to bring His Son into the world for a lowly people. Aren't you glad that our God identifies with lowly places and lowly people? I'm glad God loves lowly places and God loves lowly people. And the Bible said, the Word of God tells us these priests with pinpoint accuracy say he's to be born in Bethlehem. But here's what bothers me about this. 
Here's what I don't get. If these men are so well versed in the Old Testament, if they're tired of offering up those sacrifices and bloodying their hands, if they know exactly where the Son of God is to be born, the King of the Jews, why didn't they leave the palace and go and see? I mean, from the record of the Scripture, listen, from the record of the Scripture, there is no indication that those chief priests, those scribes, those religious people had enough interest in the Son of God being born, the King being born, to even leave the palace to go and see what had happened. One would imagine this religious crowd rushing out the palace that night to go and welcome the newborn king into the world. But they seem to be too indifferent, too callous, too unconcerned about the whole matter. Or let me say it like this, in reality, they were just too good to be guided. What I mean by that is this. The tragedy of Christmas is maybe not necessarily those who don't realize the significance of it and miss it. The tragedy of Christianity and, and the tragedy of Christmas is that those who do know the significance of what happened, but they're indifferent to it all. They're too good to be guided. They've never made it personal because they don't think they need to. They're trusting their own morality. They're trusting their own goodness, a Savior. Are you kidding? A Savior is what a drunk needs. A Savior is what a drug addict needs. A Savior is what a criminal needs. Not me. I'm okay. Our world is full of people like that who think that by their own goodness and their own morality and their own self-righteousness that they can make it to God on their own when, ladies and gentlemen, nothing could be further from the truth. The distance is too great for us to span. No matter how good we may try to live and upright we may try to be, there is a great distance, a great gulf between us and God, and only the Savior can bridge the gap and bring us back together again. Too good to be guided. You know something? The mere fact that Jesus came into this world to begin with is proof positive. There's not a person in this world that don't need Jesus. Jesus said, I come into this world to seek and to save that which is lost. Ladies and gentlemen, the problem with too many people in our world is today, they won't get lost so they can be saved. They think they're too good. But I'm here to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you can strut your way into hell thinking you're too good to be damned if you want to when all you got to do is reach out and receive the Savior and be born into his family. Too good to God, the chief priests and the scribes. But then there's a third group in this text. Not only those too good to God and those too busy to bother, but this third group is the people of Bethlehem. And the people of Bethlehem, I'm calling them the crowd that is too fearful to follow. Now let me set the stage I'm about done. Let me set the stage. We know from our text here in the Gospel of Luke that when the, the angels came to announce the birth of the Savior, the Bible said that they came and they did so, in verse number 8, to a bunch of shepherds who were out watching their fields on the outskirts of Bethlehem on the Judean hillside as they kept watch over their flock. Verse 9 said, These angels, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Isn't it amazing that the, the news of the birth of the Savior was brought to the lowly shepherds? 
Why wasn't it brought to the, to the, uh, to the uh, royal kings? Why wasn't it brought to the seizure of Rome? Why wasn't it brought to the, to the high priest in the land of Israel? But no, the first to hear about the birth of the Savior was the lowly shepherds. Once again, God identifying with the lowly crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, if he had never identified with the lowly crowd, I could have never got into his family. I'm glad he loves those people. I'm glad he has a place for those people. But I sure am glad that he loves common, everyday, ordinary, average, lowly people. Can I have an amen? They came to the shepherds. They announced the birth of Christ. Then if you look over at verse number 7, verse 16, the Bible said, And they, speaking of the shepherds, they came with haste. This is the first Christmas rush mentioned in the Bible. And they weren't headed to the mall. They were headed to the manger. The Bible said they made haste. They came with haste. And they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. But now, wait a minute. They must return now to those flocks out there on the hillside after all of this is over. But if you look at verse 17, they didn't go away quietly. Watch this now. Verse 17. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. Verse number 20 says that they were, they were glorifying and praising God. So here goes these shepherds in the middle of the night through the streets of Bethlehem and they can't help but tell what the angels have told them and what they have seen. I mean, man, they're excited about the birth of the Savior. I can see them as they go from house to house in Bethlehem. Rise up. The Savior has been born. We can take you to the place where he lays and they're glorified and praising God as they march through the streets of Bethlehem. Oh, how loud. Oh, how bothersome that, that noise would be and people were rising up from the bed and they would tell them about the birth of all things they've seen and they've heard. Come follow us, they would say. We'll take you to the place. We'll introduce you to the mother. We'll introduce you to the foster father. We'll introduce you to the Son of God. God, and yet, from the record of this text, not one person in Bethlehem followed the shepherds back to the manger to see the Son of God. What's wrong with these people? I'll tell you what I think was wrong with them. They were too fearful to follow. What do I mean by that? I think they, re they feared the retaliation of Herod the king. They knew that he was uh, hot-headed, quick-tempered, and that he would, not, he would not in any wise put up with a rival to his power. And maybe they thought if they were seen over at the manger, they could be identified and they would be put to death by Herod. Or maybe they thought, well, if we go to see a Savior and the priests and the scribes are not there, they may put us out of the synagogue. They may not want anything to do with us because we've acknowledged our need for the Savior. And they were too fearful to follow the Christ of Christmas. I wonder how many people sit in this room today and the only reason that Jesus has not been born in your heart is because you're too afraid of what somebody else might think about it. The only reason that you have never opened your heart and made your heart a manger for the Son of God to be born into your life is because you're worried about what somebody else might say. 
You know, I, I'm persuaded to believe there are people that sit in our church, sit in our church every Sunday morning, week in and week, week out, and all they've got is their name on a membership card somewhere in some church, in a church roll, in a church book, but they know down deep inside there's something missing from their life. They know down deep on the inside that uh, if they died, they're not sure they'd go to heaven, and yet they won't turn loose, and they won't come to the Christ of Christmas. They won't make their heart a manger for the Son of God to be born into because they're worried about what somebody else might think about it. I wonder how many people are sitting right here in this room this morning and you know something's missing in your life. Something down deep is missing. Maybe you joined a church in a vacation Bible school. I'm not discrediting that. People can be saved and have been saved like that. People come forward as children to get saved. I believe that can happen. I know it can happen. But ladies and gentlemen, maybe you've made some false profession as a child. You know it's not real. You know something's missing. But you won't come because you're too afraid to follow Jesus. Can I show you a good verse? Look up on the screens. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man bringeth a snare. Stop there. The fear of man prohibits people from doing what they know that they ought to do. It ensnares them. It places them in a in a in a in a in a, in a bondage in their life, a bondage of a, because they're fearful of people's opinion, and it places them in a snare, in a bondage in their life, all because they're afraid of what somebody might think about them or somebody might say about them. But I want you to read the rest of that verse with me now. The fear of man bringeth a snare, but, let's read it out loud, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Hey, this morning, why don't you sit all that aside? Listen, church membership's not going to get you to heaven. Doing the best you can, turning over a new leaf, promising to be better, all of that may be good and fine and have its place, but none of that is going to get you to heaven. You need the Savior. Sit all that down. Hey, don't worry about what people are. By the way, can I tell you about our crowd here at Woodland? They're not going to laugh at you. They're not going to talk about you. They're going to rejoice with you that you finally got it settled. Too fearful to follow. But there's one final person that steps into and out of the story of the birth of Christ, and that's an old king by the name of Herod. And I'm calling King Herod this. His excuse, I'm too wicked to want. Now what do I mean by that? Well, if you've ever read any history about this Herod that was on the throne and what he was, he was like what would be in our day an ambassador from our country going to another country. This ambassador goes to England say and he represents our country, our government in the country of England. Well what happened was the Roman Empire was so vast, so large that they would have other kings under the authority and the dominion of the Caesar of Rome who would act in the behalf of, of the nation of Rome, the empire of Rome, and look after that jurisdiction of people. And over the jurisdiction of Judea was a king by the name of Herod. Boy, what a wicked man Herod really was. He was a murderous man. Can I tell you this? He murdered his favorite wife. Now that, that automatically tells you he had more than one. But he murdered his favorite wife. He murdered his sons. He murdered thousands 
of his people. In fact, it was said of Herod that you'd rather be his pig than to be one of his children because he was a murderer. He was insanely jealous. He was ruthless and calculating. We even know that when Jesus was born, that he had all the babies because of his jealousy and his anger and his fury over the news that a king had been born. He had all the babies in and around Bethlehem from two years old and under put to death trying to kill the king that had been born. God sent an angel to warn Joseph, get up, get out of here and get into Egypt. And that's the only way Jesus was saved, through the providential leading of God Almighty. God took care of his son. Herod was a murderous man. Can I tell you this about old Herod? Listen to this. He even stole his own brother's wife. Now I've got to tell you, that's pretty low down, ain't it? Still your own brother's wife. But he had a brother. His name was Philip. He got to liking Philip's wife, and he stole Philip's wife away from him and was living without the benefit of marriage with his own brother's wife. Talk about a wicked. Talk about a man whose heart is full of sin. Herod's heart is so full of sin that he had no room in his heart for Jesus. I wonder how many people are sitting in this auditorium today and your life is so full of sin that you have no room in your heart for Jesus. Drinking, immorality, drugs, perhaps some other kind of terrible sin going on in your life and you're so dominated and so consumed by that sin, you have no room in your heart for Jesus. You're too wicked to want. Now what's your excuse today? What are you clinging to? What's your reason for not coming to Jesus? What's your reason for not letting the Christ of Christmas be born into your life? What's your reason that you've not claimed Him as your Savior? You too busy to bother? You too good to guide? You too fearful to follow? You too wicked to want? What is your excuse? And then let me tell you this. At the judgment of the great white throne, no excuse is going to stand up as to why you did not receive the Lord Jesus into your heart. This could be the greatest Christmas you would ever have by simply opening your heart and inviting Jesus to come into your life. I've been wrong about something. I need to confess this. I did our early service as well. Many of you told me how wonderful it was to be a grandparent, and I just didn't buy into it till I had my own grandchildren. Now, as much as it pains to say this, you were right and I was wrong. Grandchildren are wonderful. They really are. I love all three and a half of my grandchildren with all of my heart. I really do. These grandbabies got one tear and my heart breaks. I've got to do something. When the tears start falling, I've got to try to do something to get the tears to stop falling. I don't care what it is, cost me 25 bucks, 50 bucks, trip to the candy store, a toy, whatever. I don't care. I love, their tears touch my heart. I heard about this one grandpa, his first grandchild had been born, probably two years old now. And so he decided on an occasion he was going to go visit his little grandson. When he got there, his daughter welcomed him into the door. And when he got there, his grandson was over in the playpen and he was crying. And when he saw his papa, he reached out his arms and he said, Papa, take me. 
And that grandpa walked over there and started to reach in and take him. And his daughter said, whoa, daddy. Daddy, he's been bad. I put him in that playpen for time out. He's got to learn. He's got to listen to his mama. Now you leave him alone and leave him in there. Papa, Papa, take me. Boy, that grandpa faced a great dilemma. Knowing his grandson had to learn his lesson. Knowing his grandson had to learn to do what was right. And yet, the tears and the pleas broke his heart. So when his granddaughter turned her back, he crawled over into the playpen with his grandson, thereby making his grandson happy and his daughter is no longer able to fuss at him because she left him where he, he left her, him, where she told him to leave him. I got to thinking, that's exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. He came into this world. We were bad. We had been put into time out. We were wrong. We were wicked. We were wayward in the sight of God. But Jesus came, climbed over into our playpen, satisfied the just demands of a holy God on the cross of Calvary, thereby making us reconciled back to God again. The good news of Christmas is this. You can be saved if you want to be saved. You can come to Jesus this morning and receive Him as the Lord and God of your life and you can celebrate the greatest Christmas you'll ever have by receiving the Christ of Christmas. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I pray this morning for anybody...